Amen. Well, my name's Richard. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. It's lovely to be able to speak to you this morning. We're in um, the book of James, James chapter 2, as it's just been read to us. And the theme this morning is the theme of, um, of faith sacrifices. About the third century uh, AD, there was um, a terrible plague that took hold of the Roman Empire. I told this story uh, in an evening service a few weeks ago, so apologize if this is the second time that you've heard it, but it's a good story. There was a, a plague that took hold of the Roman Empire, and the plague was at its worst in the urban centers. Uh, many, many people were dying, many people suffering. Apparently the records show that in Rome alone, at the height of the plague, something like 5,000 people died per day in, uh, in that city. And so um, the plague took hold right the way across the Roman Empire. And in the city of Alexandria in Egypt, uh, the situation was similar. Many, many, many people suffering, dying of this horrific uh, disease. At the same time in that city, uh, in Alexandria, the Christians were being persecuted. The Christians were being uh, used as sport in the arena. They were being fed to the beasts, wild beasts. They were being killed by gladiators. They were being executed in horrific ways in that city. They were experiencing a serious wave of persecution. So there was the plague and there was persecution for the church. If you suffered from the plague or if you were suspected of suffering from this plague, your family would reject you, you'd be left out on the streets, nobody would have you in their home. And so the streets became filled with the sick and with the dying. And eventually the streets were just filled with the bodies of those who had died of the plague. Nobody was prepared to go out there, nobody was prepared to go and bury the dead. And so people began to flee from the city as conditions got worse and worse. The Christians, the church in that city made a decision. The church decided that they would stay put in the city. The Christians decided that they would go out onto the streets and that they would nurse those who were dying of the plague. They would care for its victims. The church in that city decided that they would go out onto the streets and they would take the bodies of the dead and they would bury them. Many, many people died, many Christians died in that city because of the decision that the church took to stay, to care, to bury the bodies. A couple of months ago, well, it was probably more than that, maybe six months ago now, um, we were in Cambridge and we heard um, Reverend Canon Andrew White speak. Andrew White is uh, a vicar who ministers in Baghdad. And he came to Cambridge and we, and we heard him speak. And he told lots and lots of amazing stories about what was going on in Baghdad. One of the things that he said, which just kind of really, um, which was just incredible to hear, he had with him one of his adopted sons. He's adopted about like 14 different children, I think. And, uh, and he had one of his sons with him, an, an Iraqi uh, guy. And one of the ministries that this um, son headed up which was becoming one of the sort of biggest ministries in the church, uh, was that um, this son led a team that would go out onto the streets of Baghdad and collect the bodies, collect the body parts where they'd been blown up, shot, etc. They would collect them 
and they would bring them back for families so that the families of all different faiths and no faith had something to bury. It was one of the biggest ministries that the church in Baghdad was currently uh, employed in. Last week we were talking about the fact that faith works. And we heard some great sermons last week on, on, from Darren and Tom on, on the subject that faith works. We talked about the fact that, that true faith is exhibited not just through words, but it's exhibited, or to use the language of James, it's justified through actions. Our colleagues, our neighbours, our friends, our schoolmates will recognise faith not because of what we say, but, of, but, but because of how we live, because of our actions. Faith produces an objective change in us. That's what James is saying. And James is in agreement with Paul, and Paul is in agreement with James. They both focus on faith, but they both expect to see faith exhibited through works. That's what we were talking about last week. But there are occasions where faith doesn't just work, faith sacrifices. Faith sacrifices. The history of the church, whether you go back to the third century AD, or whether you go to Baghdad, or whether you go to any corner of the world, the story of the church is of a people that are so gripped by something that they're prepared to stay in the city that's wrecked with plague to bury the dead. That they're prepared to go out into the streets where there are snipers and bombs and all this kind of thing to collect the body parts so that someone else can bury something of their loved one. And we could look at many other stories as well. There's something about faith. There's something about faith in God. Faith in Christ. Faith in the gospel that works and that sacrifices, that lives sacrificially. James gives us two examples of people uh, in, his, in this reading that live incredibly sacrificial lives. Abraham and Rahab. The two, in a way, couldn't be more different. Abraham was a man. Abraham was wealthy. Abraham was chosen by God. Abraham was selected to be the father of a nation that would be created through a miracle and then that nation would be selected from amongst the nations of the earth. Rahab was a woman. Rahab worked in the sex industry. She was a prostitute. Rahab wasn't one of God's chosen people. She wasn't a Jew or a Hebrew she was a Gentile. Rahab lived in Jericho. It was the city that stood in opposition to the promises of God being fulfilled for his people. The two couldn't be more different as characters. And yet both of them demonstrate incredible faith. Faith that sacrificed. Faith that lived sacrificially. I'm sure you know well the story of both of them, but Abraham was chosen by God to be the father of a nation. There was a problem. 
He didn't have any children and he was an old man. God said, I will provide you with a child through which this will happen. Abraham believed what God had said. He lived by that promise. His faith waned. He had a moment where he tried to force the issue. He, had, uh, he slept with his uh, wife's maid, tried to force the issue himself. But he lived by faith. And eventually, God provided him with this son, Isaac, precious son. And then God tests Abraham's faith in the most extreme way you can imagine as a parent. God asks him to take Isaac and to offer him as a sacrifice. And amazingly, Abraham takes Isaac to the place where this sacrifice is supposed to happen. Rahab, her faith is not so much tested, but she's presented with an opportunity. She lives in this city that stands opposed to what God is wanting to accomplish for his people. The spies from the Hebrews come to spy out Jericho. You can read the story of Rahab in in Joshua chapter 2 and then the story kind of completes in Joshua chapter 6. These spies come, Rahab meets them. Rahab, at incredible risk to her own safety, hides the spies while they're in the city and then facilitates their escape. Rahab seems, even though she's not one of God's chosen people, even though she's a woman, she's a prostitute, she somehow recognizes God's plans and purposes for this nation that have come out of Egypt. And she steps into that. She hides the spies. She helps them to escape from the city at incredible risk to herself. Both of them, although totally different and in very different circumstances, both of them live incredible lives of sacrifice. One, an extreme act of complete abandon to God and, to, and complete consecration to God. And the other, an act of complete selflessness on behalf of others, hiding the spies, helping them to escape. It seems to me that both Abraham and Rahab are gripped with something that's more than just their current situation. They're gripped with hope. They're gripped with faith. They're gripped with confidence in what God is going to do. The New Testament writers shed some light on Abraham's thought process. It says in Hebrews that Abraham believed that God could raise Isaac from the dead. That if he had to go through with that sacrifice, that God could raise him from the dead. I believe that Abraham walked to that place with Isaac confident in God, full of hope for what God had. And if it it came to it, that that God would raise Isaac back to life. We know that when Abraham got to the place of sacrifice there in the bush, was a ram caught by the horns and God says use the ram and it stands as one of the Old Testament's great images of what Christ did in our place on the cross but Abraham and Rahab I believe lived with real hope 
Abraham is the only person in scripture to be called friend of God. Rahab came out of this city that was, was going to be destroyed and ended up living with God's chosen people. Both Abraham and Rahab are mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew's gospel. Both of them, I think, were gripped with a hope for this life and a hope for what lay ahead. And I just wonder if that hope is what enabled them to live such sacrificial lives. I wonder if it's the hope of what lies ahead that enables the Christians in Iraq to go out and do the things that they do, that enabled the Christians in Alexandria to go and do what they did. I hope that we know that our, our, our reward, our treasure is not found in the pleasures of this life, but it's found in Jesus. It's found in Christ. It's found in the reality of our eternal relationship with him, not in the things of the here and now. Paul said that our true life is hidden in Christ with God. Our true life is secure, hidden in Christ with God. That our hope is an anchor for the soul. It's firm and secure. Our citizenship is in heaven. That's where we truly belong. This is how Revelation describes our future hope. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away. There was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among people. He will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning, no more crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. the Christian hope that God is making everything new C.S. Lewis uh, tried to capture something of that in his own words in his book The Last Battle I love this this is what C.S. Lewis said in that book he said the term is over the holidays have begun the dream is ended this is the morning For them it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read which goes on forever and ever in which every chapter is better than the one before. Hope. Hope for this life hope for the life to come something that is an anchor for the soul that enables people to live sacrificial lives hope of what's ahead of us not just what we see around us not the pleasures of this life but something that is secure in Christ Um, a few years ago um, me and a few friends we we did a triathlon you will be looking at me now thinking 
How did that guy do that? But we did. We did this triathlon. And um, <clears throat> I tell you, the moments on this, on this triathlon where you just, it just felt like I just want to, I can't cope with this anymore. I just want to give up. And um, <clears throat> the, my, my strongest bit of the triathlon was the swimming. And that isn't to say that I was strong at swimming. I'm just saying that was my strongest bit. And so, but there's nothing that can prepare you for swimming in a triathlon until you've actually swum in a triathlon. You can swim as many lengths as you want in the pool. It's nothing, I promise, nothing like swimming in a triathlon. So when you're in the triathlon, you cannot see the water is so dark in, in the lake that we were swimming. You couldn't see more than a few inches ahead of you. So consequently, the person in front is constantly kicking you in the nose as you're trying to swim. It's, it's awful. And people are swimming over the top of you. Every time you breathe, it's, it's, it's just, it's, it's unbelievable. The swimming was my best bit. Within about 50 meters, I was thinking, I just want to get out of this. This is awful. And people being pulled out of the water and stuff like that. It was dreadful. I thought about giving up. A little bit later, I, I got out of the water and I was cycling. And, I was, and my friend Graham, he, he was, I was one of the people I was doing it with this, he was really good at everything apart from swimming. So I was thinking, wow, I'm still ahead of Graham. This is great. I'm, I, I'm really, really, I must be doing brilliantly to still be ahead of Graham. And then just as I was thinking that, uh, I heard this voice behind me shouting, all right, Rich. And Graham shoots past me, like legs like a horse on this bike. And I was like, God, man. I thought, oh, just, let's just give up. Just want to stop. Let's just call it a day. And then when I got off the bike, uh, I don't know why, but every, I kept getting cramp in my legs. And I got off the bike, I had terrible cramp. I thought, oh, man. And then we, you get onto the run, in, in this, and it looked flat on the map. But as soon as you came around the first bend, it was a hill. I, was, oh, I had to keep stopping and stretching. It was, it was agony. just felt like I just wanted to stop, just wanted to give up. But there's something about the finish line. There's something about the hope that's before you that says, no, I'm just going to keep going. I want to get to that line. I want to get um, my medal. I want to get my free bottle of Lucasade. I, I want to, I, I, re- I need my free bottle of Lucasade. It's really what I was thinking. I but you know, you say, oh, oh, there's something about the hope that lies before you that makes you keep going, that, that enables you to endure the, 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 what felt like drowning and, and all these other things. I was talking to a guy at um, my son's football the other day and he was telling me that he'd done the half marathon he said you know the best bit about it it was just finishing the rest the race was horrible but finishing that was really that was really good there's something about the hope that lies before you that keeps you going that keeps you motivated Let me just finish by talking about Jesus. Nobody lived a more sacrificial life than Jesus. Nobody has ever lived a more sacrificial life than him. Jesus gave up heaven. He came to earth. He uh, came as a, as a man. He lived as a servant amongst us. He gave himself fully to everything that God had for him. And ultimately, he gave himself completely, nailed to a cross, as a sacrifice for the sin of the world. He also rose again and will be coming back. But nobody lived more sacrificially than Jesus Christ. In Hebrews, it says this about him. Hebrews chapter 12, it says this. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross scorning its shame 
and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. What an amazing verse. That for the joy set before Jesus, he endured the agony, the shame of the cross. Lived a completely sacrificial life. Gave himself as a sacrifice because of the joy that was set before him. I just wonder if one of the things that enables Christians to live sacrificially is the knowledge of the joy that lies before them. I know Rahab and Abraham weren't Christians, but I wonder if one of the things that enabled them to live a sacrificial life was because of the joy that they knew lay before them. I imagine the people of Alexandria all those years ago held the joy of what lay before them in front of them as they went out onto the streets, cared for the dying and buried the dead. And the same for those in Iraq. This isn't Iraq. This isn't Alexandria. This is Ealing. But God at times will call us to live sacrificially. He will. Whether it's an act of obedience, whether it's something on behalf of someone else, I don't know what, but he will at times ask us to live sacrificially. And when that moment comes, let's fix our eyes on Jesus. Let's live for the joy that's before us rather than the transient pleasures of this life.